Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, the podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. If you'd like to know what it takes to grow a business from zero to over $25 million in revenue before selling to a listed entity, then this episode is for you. My next guest is Wally Akacha, and he joined TSI PipeTech as their operations manager. Now, he was their first employee, and he grew through that business into the GM role and eventually the managing director role, at which point he took some equity. Now, Wally oversaw some massive growth in that business, uh, and by the time they eventually sold to Downer EDI, they had about 180 employees. It's a really interesting story in the civil construction space, and you know, Wally takes us through a whole bunch of things that any business owner needs to traverse and handle during a journey like that, particularly looking at what that transaction looked like, including some of the transitional things to consider. So if you're interested in businesses that have gone along that journey, if you are in the civil space, this episode is definitely going to have some great insights for you. This is Wally Akacha. Hello, Wally. Welcome to the show. Hello, Simon. Thanks for having me, mate. Nice to be here. My absolute pleasure, mate. I'm, uh, I'm very excited to hear your story and, uh, and talk a little bit about what you do these days and who you help and all that good stuff. But uh, maybe to kick things off, maybe you could just give us a little overview of your background and, uh, and, and sort of what led you to you know, the business we're going to chat about. Yeah, thanks, Simon. Uh, so my background is in, in, is in civil engineering, civil structural engineering. I, um, I grew up sort of being really interested in excavators and you know bulldozers and that sort of thing and it kind of took me into into a civil engineering degree where I kind of um, thought I'd be out out in the field watching watching those things uh, operate for a living and it was um, it was really something that uh, you know I think back now and I'm pretty sure I had made that decision when I was about five to, to, to do that went through school get the mark got the marks that I needed and was lucky enough to to go to uh, to the University of Technology in Sydney and and, and did a degree there. So, yeah, I, I started kind of that my career off as a civil structural engineer, and and that kind of led me to 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 becoming part of part of that industry for the for the first few okay. years of my career. So in my early twenties, I bounced around a few different um, a few different companies, learned the trade. Uh, not so much engineering, more project management is what I got into. And and just learning about how to you know how how projects work and and all of the commercial drivers in through all of that mate. So yeah, that was the sort of the start of my career. I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that I reckon you must have had a few Tonka trucks as a kid. I uh, I had a few, and I and I had one that my grandparents had kept for me 
until I was about 25 years old. I, uh, I only <laughs> wish that I'd kept it long enough for my son to play with it. But uh, I, I had yeah. a fair few of them. Absolutely, Simon. Mate, they're great toys. I, I, I still remember buying them for my boys. And, uh, and we bought them the one, they both had, uh, the big dump trucks and they were metal and hardcore. And, and they used to run up and down our corridor pushing them. And of course we had those, um, those tiles that were a little bit rough. And so as they'd slam the truck sideways to skid and everything else, after doing that for about five years, eventually those wheels started to wear down a little bit. But I'm like, Anything that can last five years with that kind of punishment is clearly a quality, well, well-made product. <laughs> Simon, that's a that's a very good utilization rate and a great uh, a great amount of time to get out of the Tonka trucks, mate. That's, I'd, I'd be happy with that as a business owner, actually. <laughs> totally, totally. I bet you, I bet you, my kids have a better uh, retention or better better strike rate on their tires than they do out in the mines, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably right, mate. That's probably right. Now they're um, yeah, it's 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 good it's good to sort of start like that, mate, and um, and develop a passion for something. It's it's, it's a real nice thing. Yeah. I, I think that's really interesting what you're saying about knowing it from the age of five, though, because it's I, I, I've i seen and met lots of people who were just so crystal clear from a young age about what they were passionate about. And then, to be honest, there's people like me who I just had no bloody idea what I wanted to do when I grew up. And, and you know, and I was, I was kind of chuckling to people saying that I was still saying that in my 30s, I reckon, um, <laughs> you know, and I, and I did stuff and I had a career and I was focused and I worked my guts out on various things. But I probably until I started doing what I was doing now, I, I wasn't truly 100 percent passionate knowing I was doing my the right work. So, mate. Uh, I, I don't know. Did it dawn on you when you were five, or was it just this overwhelming passion for for seeing these trucks and stuff like that? I uh, I used to. I remember standing on the balcony with my with my granddad, and there was a construction site across the road from his unit, and and we'd stand there for hours just watching these trucks, you know, load and dump and all of this sort of stuff. And and I remember my granddad telling me that he, you know, first thing I'd want to do when I wake up in the morning is watch those trucks operate. And, you know, I'd, I'd be out on the balcony for as long as possible. Uh, you know, I, I really think back now to my my upbringing and, you know, every time I thought about anything I was going to do after school, there was never a question. I don't even think there was, you know, any other consideration given to any other career uh, aside from being able to witness these trucks up close and personally. Yeah, nice. T- tell me, what we, uh, I mean, recall what you can anyway, but when you were going through school and high school and, and, and do, do, so did you remain, did you continually have that clarity through high school and going into uni? I, um, I, I had clarity in terms of what I enjoyed doing and what I didn't enjoy doing. And that was so, you know, I was, I was very focused and strong in the, in the area of maths and in the area of physics and in the areas of engineering, sort of engineering science back then was a, was a subject that, that, uh, that I did. And it was kind of, I, I guess, and it's going to sound really corny here, but it was, a, it was kind of the perfect alignment of passion and, and ability. I, I found maths, physics, engineering, science quite easy to, to, to tell you the truth. And when I say easy, I don't mean, you know, I, I, I nailed every single test I ever did, but if I, if I focused you know, well enough on something. I got it, got it pretty quickly, and so I, I kind of thought, well, civil engineering, uh, you know, takes what I really enjoy doing from a from a personal perspective, combines it with a skill set that I've been able to develop quite naturally, uh, and yep. and I thought, you know what, there's 
there's not really there's, there's not a great deal of thinking it's a bit of a no-brainer here as to what i'm doing after school yeah yeah no that's awesome I, it's as i said before i mean i think i i kind of looked at mates who had that either that clarity or or they just knew they were going into the family business and so they you'd ask them what they're doing they're like oh it's just done this is easy you know and i it's like wow! Like I, I, I was sort of somewhat envious because they just didn't seem to have the burden that I had of not knowing what to do with my life. And I went off and studied business, and I did stuff, but I just, yeah, just going, I just no idea really. And yeah, I just always found that to be quite a weight on my shoulders. So, uh, so that's awesome. Simon, so, I think it's a bit of a, you know, it's a, it's a tough question to ask a teenager going through school. You know, what do you, what do you want to do? What do you, you know, what's, what's your plans post school? And uh, it's. It's a question that I, I don't think many should be forced to answer. You know, things change. You develop. You know, your, your, you know, your, your, your passion develops as well through school, post school, and it's um, you know, it's it's different for everyone, I guess. But you know, it's um, yeah. it's it's a tough one for some people. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Out of interest, mate, do you have kids? I've got three kids, Simon. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, cool. And and do you see any of them, uh, you know, following in your steps in that respect in terms of having passion around trucks and construction and things like that? Uh, I've got I've got so an eldest daughter, middle son, and a, and a younger daughter now. Look, I, I, I do see that there is certain um, tendencies in terms of the schoolwork at the moment. You know, uh, maths yeah, okay. does seem to come a bit easier to them now. Whether that's things that you know we focus on here, and you know, we tend to kind of pay a bit more attention to that. I'm not too sure whether it's genetic. I'm not too sure, but uh, I don't think I've seen uh, anything that's really kind of definitive at the moment, uh, aside from you know, playing video games and that sort of thing, which is which is kind of what happens yeah, these yeah, days. Yeah. No, true, true. Um, so, well, you're going to we're going to have a bit of a chat about. I understand you you were involved in an engineering business that eventually um, you know you took over as managing director and eventually got acquired. So, mate, uh, tell us you know can you tell us the name of the business? Is that Something you share with us? Sure, sure, Simon. Uh, business called ITS Pipe Tech, and I mm. was I was lucky enough to experience a really good journey uh, in that business across thirteen years, uh, alongside uh, a couple of business partners and um, primarily the founder. Uh, so the founder Trevor Grunewald was um, was it was a key sort of uh, I guess figure in in my development and and in the you know the progress of that business as well. Yeah, that's awesome. And so, at what level did you kind of come into the firm? Simon, I was the firm's very first employee, so I wow. actually, yeah, okay. I actually met, um, I, I met the founder Trevor about two weeks before the business was actually launched, and it was it was through, you know, they say, you know, your network is about as important as, as anything, and it was through my network that I, I got introduced to uh, this entrepreneur, and mm-hmm. you know, it was uh, we had a meeting, and I kind of, um, you know, we talk about passion. I, I heard the, the passion in his voice about what he was hoping to achieve with this business. I always thought it'd be really, uh, you know, interesting for me to, to jump in to a business at an early stage to see how it grows. Maybe not quite so early was my intention, but, you know, pre, pre-launch was about as early as it gets. And, and so, yeah, <laughs> I, was, I was the very first employee and, uh, you know, it was um, it was basically the business was started working across a small desk from one another, myself and the founder. Oh, that's cool. It's experiencing that kind of startup. I think teaches you things about business that you know stepping into large corporates just can't. That's exactly right. You you know you, you go from quoting and invoicing uh, right through the whole kind of um, 
yeah, the whole organization. And it's, it, it does teach you a lot and it kind of gives you a certain level of empathy and a certain level of understanding of everyone's role having performed that role. And, and you know, yes. you, you take on a leadership you take on a leadership role that's a, a, a bit more um, a bit more relatable, having having experienced yeah. all those roles through the business. Indeed, indeed, and it probably gives you a good, healthy dose of uh, empathy for people in the firm too. So. Absolutely, absolutely, Simon. Yeah. yeah, nice. And and so, when you started, did you start as a um, as a shareholder as well, or were you just an employee? Or no, Simon, I was I was just an employee at the time, uh, and there was you know there was there was no uh, sort of at the time, promises were not made around shareholding. It was purely a, you know, join as an employee and and kind of let's just see how the relationship uh, evolves and the relationship works. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. And so, what what did the journey look like over thirteen years? You know, roles and evolution, and you know, if you can give us a, a sense of what the path the company took as well, that'd be great. So we were quite a niche sort of a civil engineering business. We, we were a business that focused on uh, pipeline. Uh, rehabilitation and and repair and renewal. So we had a we had a kind of an interesting little niche that we that we sort of started into in the civil engineering industry, and and the business uh, we looked at providing basically um, government authorities and and you know asset owners with technologies that were somewhat more sustainable than your traditional dig and replace methods. And so it was it was fascinating to be part of a business that was not only operating in a in an industry that I somewhat knew well at the time but it was present it was providing some innovative technologies and so it gave me the ability to take what I knew from engineering and combine it with a lot of business principles around launching products around marketing around sales it wasn't just a situation where our business uh, was was rolling up and tendering for, for projects sometimes we had to create our own market. Simon, and that and that kind of teaches you a lot more than just your traditional sort of tender win sort of scenario that, that, that you know some some civil engineering slash construction companies are operating. So, so so my role initially was in the um, you know quoting and, and invoicing the, the admin part of the business, and 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 my role evolved as as the business grew as we brought people in to perform roles on on projects. My my role went from you know, doing the work to managing the work and, and leading teams. And that's where I started to develop a whole set of other skills around around leadership that were not so much engineering. Yeah, yeah. So was that your first sort of foray into leadership or have you had you had sort of different kind of roles before that had maybe prepared you for it? I'd, I'd had a few roles in, in previous uh, businesses that I had worked in where I was, I was a project engineer on some sites and you know, depending on the size of the business, a project engineer on construction sites could have three or four direct reports and then about, you know, 10, 15 indirect reports. So I'd had a few tastes of, of leadership on a, on a smaller scale. And, and, and that really kind of made me feel that I enjoyed the responsibility of, of, of leading a team. I, I, enjoyed the respon- I enjoyed the feeling of results being somewhat attributed to my leadership. So I'd had a little bit of a taste of it. And and I kind of wanted a bit more as the as the business kept on growing. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. I uh, so often see um, people sort of thrust into leadership sometimes, and it's you know it's sometimes sometimes it's a bit of a sink or swim scenario. But it's uh, you know I think it's people learn a lot about themselves when they suddenly have to lead other people. 
Simon, I learned a lot about myself, mate. The uh, you know for those twelve to thirteen years, I learned a, I learned a lot about how to lead a team, but I learned a lot about myself as well, mate. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. So, can you tell us a little bit about, or give us a sense of the business? And okay, so you're in this niche space, I, I, you know, I, I don't know, but I'm randomly guessing here that I, you must have, I imagine you dealt with big water utilities or something. You say pipes, I think of Sydney Water or someone like that, yep. but. Uh, yep. Yep. That sort of stuff. So what did the journey look like over 13 years? Did the business, was it growing? Was it, you know, can, can you give us a sense of what the company, how big it was? I don't know if you can give us some sort of idea of that. but Yeah, sure. Sure, Simon. So we started off with a couple of crews uh, working on, on, some, on some projects for Sydney Water. Uh, and, and, so, and Sydney Water was one of our biggest clients uh, all, through, all through the business. Sydney Water was an interesting, uh, I guess, case study in, in in how we had to manage a bit of sort of a revenue risk with Sydney Water through the business because it was so our revenue was so heavily um, focused on Sydney Water that at various times in the business we had to take some steps to to de-risk some of that. But we can get to that a bit later on. Our, our journey yeah. started off with a, a couple of crews turning over, I think, just a, a tad under five million in in the first sort of couple of years and. And over sort of the next ten to sort of twelve years, we grew at an at a rate of around about thirty two percent compounded wow. every year in terms of revenue. Now we, we had some we had some years where we jumped quite considerably. We had a couple of other years where we plateaued in our in our revenue and 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 you know business. There's, there's steps in businesses where you know, revenue jumps up. You've got to sort of bring your costs up. Bring bring people in, you know, bring the resources in to actually start delivering some of that work, and then you go you go again. And so, being a business that relied upon projects, we we were always tendering, we were always creating that sort of opportunity for ourselves, and then and then tendering, and then kind of having to having to to, to basically bring in the resources to to deliver that work. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. It, um, and and I I relate to that point of. You know, sometimes you've got to actually bring people on and start incurring the cost so you can actually gear up to actually grow to that next level. Yes. It's it's an interesting one because I think a lot of business owners, when they're faced with that, the thought of taking on more cost in a time when maybe they're feeling the pinch a little bit is can be a little uh, counterintuitive. One of the things, Simon, that we did really well really early in our business was we we really narrowed down a, a razor-sharp focus on our forecast and for us, you know, for us, and, and you know, I, I think back to some of the lessons that I learned during my, my time at ITS, you know, the, the forecast and, and, and just getting disciplined around that was one of the key things that we did really early on. Having a razor sharp forecast allows you to make some, some you know, better decisions around bringing in resources, around, around you, know, you know, what projects we should go for, what projects we shouldn't go for. And this was, this was an absolute sort of key in, in the rhythm of the business. You know, forecasts had to be updated. Um, numbers needed to be right because some pretty major decisions were being um, sort of taken off the back of what the forecast was telling us. So, and you know, and, and in areas where we could forecast, there was going to be a bit of a drop in revenue or six, 12 months out where we could forecast a bit of a jump up in revenue. Then we were able to have a long enough runway to bring in those resources. And I think sometimes business owners, they get nervous about bringing in resources I think because there hasn't been enough work done on some appropriate forecasting that the business needs to do. 
whether it's looking at the market, whether it's looking internally, whether it's looking at existing clients. So, so forecasting, I believe, is, it was one of the keys that, that we were able to execute really well during, during that quite rapid growth that we had over 12, 13 years. Yeah, that's that's a great insight. I mean, I and, and it's logical, you know. Now you've said it too. I mean, you if you've got confidence in your numbers, you've got confidence in the plan, and so you're willing to, you know, take the steps you need to take. And and the more you forecast, the better you get at forecasting. Now that's not to say that the forecast is going to be right, but the more you forecast, the better you calibrate in terms of the forecasting process, Simon. If that makes sense. And so yeah, you know, I, I say to businesses that I work with now. You know, I can almost guarantee that that you will have a better ability to predict the future. Now, you're not going to predict it 100%, but the more you forecast, the better you get at forecasting, the better you will predict the future for your business. And and that's that's pretty powerful to be able to give a business owner that sort of a feeling that they've got some headlights in this business and, and they can kind of almost foresee what's going to happen in the future. Yeah, and I think it's almost quite primal, isn't it? I mean, I I think as human beings, we... We naturally crave, well, control and and stability, um, and and so and as we know, business can be quite chaotic and unpredictable. So, yeah, I think that uh, the ability to try to put some frames around what you do and bring in some of that variability and volatility, you know, a obviously puts your business in a better place, but b gives you that little sleep at night factor, perhaps. <laughs> it does. It does, Simon. And, and, and in that sort of, um, uh, on that topic, Simon, we, we also took a decision through the journey of the business that we would take our, our, um, our focus onto some term maintenance contracts as well, Simon. Mm-hmm. So in, in de-risking some of our revenue forecasting, we, we had a real sort of purpose to, to go after some long-term maintenance contracts that would iron out some of the peaks and the troughs in the revenue when, you, when you're consistently going after high, high-value project work. And, and, you know, we, we had a focus where we wanted our revenue to be 60, 40, you know, 60 in, in terms of term maintenance and, and 40 in terms of project work. So uh, we kind of got there towards towards the end of the, you know, sort of the run that we had before before others took the business over. But it was a real, there was purpose about that because we wanted to really de-risk our, our ability to make some decisions going forward. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I because I, you know, you're talking about business models fundamentally here, right? And and different revenue models. And mm-hmm. I, I've seen businesses make the shift from traditional. Um, uh, by the way, I've seen this in SaaS models as well as other kind of businesses. But where they go from selling a chunky piece of equipment or a project to stringing it out over some sort of subscription model, let's say, um, even if that subscription has a set term of two or three years or whatever it might be before you have to renew it. And and I've found with certain businesses, when they try to make that shift, for the first year, it can actually have a real impact on cash flow, you know, because you're, you're switching from this, oh, we got this nice big lumpy thing up front to actually we're not going to get that money for some time. So, on paper, profitable, but cash flow can be squeezed. I mean, do, I don't know if you've got any thoughts around that, but I, I, I sort of one of the things oh, I've seen. Simon, I, I, I do absolutely, mate. I do because you know some of, some of these contracts that, that that we were sort of going for were five, ten year contracts that had a quite a significant upfront setup fee. You know, whether it's bringing software into the business or whether it's bringing people on board or you know buying some plant equipment. So you needed to you needed to absolutely forecast for the cash flow implications on the business. When, when going for these sort of term maintenance contracts. And, and, you know, this was one of those classic situations where it's, it's, a, it's the long game here that we're, we're playing. It's not the short-term you know, revenue profit hit that, that you're going to get out of a, a, a really kind of um, 
high value project. So, you know, absolutely, there's, there, is, there is a lot to be considered and when taking the business model and, and twisting it like that. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's really interesting. Can, can I ask you? You talked about you know you mentioned a few times here about that that sort of concentration risk around clients. Um, I don't know if you can share it with me, but like at what through the history of the business, like at what point, like what? How big was your biggest client in terms? Can you say in terms of percentages of revenue what it was or roughly was? Yeah, our biggest client was around about thirty five percent of our revenue, and and so yeah, okay, and and that was and that was a risk. In that we just we needed to make sure that we didn't have resources tied up in the business that couldn't be appropriately uh, redeployed should should a major you know uh, I guess contracting model sort of change happen with with that client and that sort of thing. So you know we were always mindful of of the, the revenue risk and and how much of our resource was tied up to that revenue and 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 because some of that revenue also needed to be delivered in a fairly unique specialized way as well, Simon. And, yes. and, and yeah. so that was it was absolutely a thing that we we kind of really kept on kept our focus on through the through the evolution of the business. Yeah, that's that's great because I mean you, 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 I get a sense that this was really very much on the dashboard for you guys, and and you were clearly monitoring it and stuff. It, it, it's an area that I, I seem to talk a lot about with people because having guided a number of clients through transactions, we're always sort of saying you. you Buyers are buying your future stream of profit, and what they then do is start discounting value based on risk. So if they see concentration risk with a supplier or a customer or sometimes even employees, mm-hmm. you, you can get pinged in your valuation for that. And, and one of the natural questions I get a lot is, well, you know, how high is too high for my biggest client? And, uh, and, and a kind of a general rule, and I guess I want to bounce this off you to see, you know, um, get your feedback on this and, and maybe even understand what it was like when you, when you finally did hit your transaction. But I was sort of saying to people that about 15% for your largest client is, is, you know, over 15%, you start to see a bit of a red flag. It's, it's not necessarily a massive drama, but, sure. you know, hit 15 and more. Mm, okay. It's on the radar. We're looking at it. Um, by the time you start getting to about 25, there's kind of a bit of a red flashing light now. And, you know, if you're getting over 35 and 50 and whatever, well, there's alarms going off and, you know, yep, yep, air raid sirens. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm just interested, did you guys have a target for that? And and what was it like by the time you finally got to to actually selling the business? Simon, we, we didn't have a target in, in terms of a client because we, we, fo- we focused more so on the contracts that we had with that client. And, and, and so the duration of the contract and the value of the contract to us was a bit more important than the fact that it was with client A, B, or C. Now, gotcha. in, in, in the world of construction, you know, and, and term maintenance contracts in, in particular, you generally had a, you know, you had performance clauses, of course, and, and assuming you did everything correctly from a health, safety, environment, and quality perspective, you had a tenure that, that, that you know, you could uh, predict and forecast a contract to go for. And so for us, it was more about, you know, at which point down the track are we going to have these contracts up for renewal? And at which point down the track will, will we have a situation where there's going to be a couple of renewals going on at the same time? And, and, and so that's why we were a bit more comfortable with that, with that sort of weighting of around about 30 to 35% because there was at no point, you know, were we going to have that 35% up for renewal at the same time? So, I mean, so, so gotcha. really when I think back now, at, at any given moment, we may have had at most around about 10% up for renewal at, at 
you know, at, at, yeah, at any given point. So, and, and at the end of the business, to answer the second part of the question, at the end of the business, I think we still had around about 35% concentration with Sydney Water at the time the business was sold. But I guess the, the buyer was quite comfortable in that there was still quite a tenure to go. There was minimum two to three years to go on those contracts, which was long enough yeah. for the purchaser to take what we had, grow it, expand on it, and actually then go in and renew things going forward, which, which incidentally, they have renewed, which, which, which was an outstanding achievement for them post-sale. Post Oh, that's cool. Yeah, and I, and I think it's worth pointing out too, just for those listening who may end up in a transaction at some point, I mean, there is concentration risk as a factor in your business. But if you, and I'm just going to use some nice simple math for my brain here, but if your business turns over 10 million and your acquirer turns over 100 million or 500 million, mm-hmm. you know, your 10 million that might be highly concentrated, once it goes into the revenue bucket of their business, actually just <laughs> that concentration disappears. <laughs> it does. It does, yes. And so the, the acquirer is looking at the, the profit that you're making out of that revenue and, and and how how well can they predict that that profit is going to come in and for how long before they need to really get in and start and start working the business. And and yeah, you know, like it's yeah. it, it's all there's this it's a complex process which an acquirer needs to go through, of course. And it is all about de-risking. And, and trying to understand you know, what are the opportunities as well that the business has versus the risks in, in, in making this acquisition. Yeah. And, and, and that's a great sort of segue, I guess, is, um, you know, when it came to selling the business, so I understand you've, you've now moved up a couple of roles um, into, the, into the managing director role. Is that right? Sure, Simon. So around about three or four years along the journey, I was, I was lucky enough to be given an opportunity to become a shareholder in the business. Uh, paid for that shareholding as well. And so, you know, from a personal perspective at the time, pretty much took everything I had and some and, and put it into a yep. business and, and, and told my, my wife that it's okay, this is going to work out. Um, and so you know, <laughs> there were a few sleepless nights along, along the journey, that's, <laughs> that's for sure. But yeah, so it was lucky enough to be given an opportunity to, to buy into the business uh, bought into the business and and then joined the, the you know the, the directors in the business. Uh, at the time, I was general manager of the business as well, and, and then eventually worked my way up to into becoming a managing director. Yeah, that's cool. A- out of interest, so that that whole little experience there did you um, did you approach the current ownership and say I'm interested in buying in, or did they come to you and say we've got an idea? Did it? How did that kind of discussion evolve? Well, after, after the after the ownership got a got a taste of who I was as an individual, and you know this is this is the important uh, point here as well. Simon is, you know, you 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 got to go in and you got to prove your worth as a, as an individual in a, in any business, really, in in any role. Before you ask for anything, you got to prove your worth in in the roles and the positions that the business has given you. And so, having having kind of un- undertaken my roles quite successfully as the business uh, was growing. Uh, you know the, the ownership structure at the time, identifying who I was, what made me tick, uh, my values, you know, my behaviours, uh, me approaching and me pushing a, a conversation around ownership was easier because of what they had already learned about me as an individual. So, absolutely, I, I pushed, and and I remember thinking at the time that because I was there from day one, and this is now five years into the business, and you know we had about sixty employees, and um, I I pretty much employed nearly every single one of those people. I, I felt absolutely engaged to the business like any other owner would. 
Uh, it's just that I didn't I didn't have that kind of uh, that shareholding, which which I felt I needed to, to really kind of take my take my engagement to the next level. So yes, I did approach, uh, and, and yes, I kind of made my position um, well known around you know how how keen I was to to become an owner of the business. And I guess looking back now at the time, uh, you know you, you've got you've got an, an incredibly engaged employee who who wants to go that next level, wants to put their money into the business. Um, you know, there's 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 not many other signs that I could have given at the time, and so it was yeah. it was thankfully well received. Yeah, no, you know, and as I guess as a business owner, I mean, geez, you couldn't get more of a compliment than one of your own team members saying, "I'm willing to put my own money into this. I believe in it so much, and I'm so dedicated." So, you know, I think I think they're probably pretty lucky to have you too, Wally. So, oh, no, thank you, mate. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. No, look, it was um, it, look at, at the time it was kind of the uh, it it was. It, it was the right time and the right place for, for both parties, myself and, and the business. Yeah, yeah, no, that's awesome. When you um, when you joined, so a couple of little technical kind of questions, if I could, is sure. um, did did you guys have a shareholders agreement when you started when you came in? When I came in, we did have a shareholders agreement. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and it was so I hadn't had any experience reading a shareholders agreement at that point, Simon. So this is yeah. where I I really went from you know working as a project manager operations manager worried about construction risk to becoming a business owner and, and worrying about you know the the, the challenges of, of, of being a business owner and and the first step was reading a shareholders agreement you know using my, my legal support to do that and um and and that's where I found out that I really enjoy this part of the process a bit more than engineering yeah, yeah, it is certainly an interesting process, and I'm curious about the path to exiting. You know, because I find a lot of business owners they're really good at what they do, and they don't necessarily think about the end game until kind of they're something like the changes in their life, or they're confronted with an opportunity to exit. So, did you guys, when you came on as a shareholder, was there any discussion around an end game or potential exits one day, or what that might look like, or was it just full steam ahead? Simon, there wasn't any conversation about uh, potential exits. It was absolutely full steam ahead. We'd, uh, yeah, we were about five years into into our journey. We had just opened up offices in Brisbane and over in Perth as well. We, we, you know, we were kind of, um, I wouldn't say dominating, but we we'd taken some significant market share off off our competitors, you know, here in here in Sydney as well. So, you know, we were we were profitable. We were growing. We were having a lot of fun doing it. Simon, and that's 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 probably another point here, mate. That th- this whole process, it was it was actually working with people I would consider my my close friends now. So, you know, th- there was no real uh, thought about selling at the time that that I bought into the business. It was more about, you know, let's 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 really kind of take this to the next level. Let's let's really go hard here and, and dominate in some of those other geographic locations that we had just established. Yeah, that's awesome. And and what? So you obviously did eventually sell. Was there a decision internally that, oh, okay, like maybe there's something's changed or we're, you know, there's an internal decision of let's go find a buyer or were you just tapped on the shoulder or some other opportunistic thing kind of came along? Simon, we got to a point where we hit a certain revenue number where our, our results needed to be reported. And, and it was incredible because we got to that point in our business. So we were turning turning over in excess of $25 million and we received. We started to receive approaches from from brokers. We received some approaches from businesses, and and, and we were lucky that at the at that time, sort of around 2015, 2016, the water industry 
had come onto the radar of a number of the bigger multinational construction businesses. You know, uh, the, the water industry, it, it's an essential service if ever there is one. And, and you know, some of the bigger multinational sort of construction businesses were looking to diversify. And, and water just came onto the radar of, 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 these, of these companies. And, and we had just hit, we, we were sort of at the right point where people thought, these guys have proven that they can actually perform, but there's probably a whole lot more that, that, that these guys can still achieve. And there was never a, there was never an intention for us to sell. It was it was just people contacting us, and and, and eventually Simon, as, as as you know, tends to happen. There's an approach that that just makes sense, you know, and you want to explore it. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting thing, right? Every, everything is for sale at a price. <laughs> yeah, I have heard that before, and and it's funny because I'm pretty sure for me anyway, we weren't for sale, <laughs> but. But as I said, you know, like there's 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 an approach sometimes that just has to warrant another conversation, and then another conversation leads yeah. to another conversation, you know, and it's and, yeah, yeah, you know, and the rest is history sometimes. Yeah, um, I, I, I'm pretty sure from what I was seeing that this um, was a, uh, a publicly listed acquirer, so I believe it would be in the public space. Is that is that right? And can you say who it was? Or yeah, so our our, um, our acquirer was Downing Utilities, so large large multinational business, and and they had a really good strategy around you know diversifying what they already were dominating um, in the water industry. You know, great organization with some great people that were doing some great things in the water industry. We're looking to add a little bit of a niche service offering to their existing uh, water water capabilities. And and yeah, it was kind of again, it was it was almost like the planets planets aligned at the time, Simon. Yeah, just a good fit. And I think that's that's the big strategy for corporates, right? Is that hey, we've got good solid presence and branding and whatever, and we have a good ins to various clients. So they they. This probably sounds a little bit mean, but they want to get as many hooks into clients as they can, right? <laughs> Across so many different areas, and that's how you make clients sticky. So it's, I, I think this is a well-worn path for corporates to take: is to buy niche businesses and bring them into the fold. It is, and and you know, I mean, businesses like you know, like ours, we're then going to benefit from a, a much wider wider reach, a great network of of individuals across the country, internationally as well, and you know, and it was it was. Uh, again, as I said earlier, it was alignment of the planets. You know, we had the right technologies. We had cracked it in areas that they they hadn't cracked it as much as we had, and it was time for them to kind of uh, take our business to the next level. Yeah, and and so tell me how how long did this sort of process go for? You know, somebody reaches out to you that first little point of contact. There's probably bits of back and forth and whatever, but as you kind of work out whether you want to talk about this stuff, and then into some form of due diligence, I matter, and contracts and yada, 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 right? I mean, it's quite a process. How long would that whole process have taken you guys to till, you know, you finally settled on a deal? For us, Simon, it was about 12 months from the from the initial approach. And, and, and the first sort of three months was more around them watching us achieve the results that we told them we were going to achieve for that financial year. So the first approach would have been around about March, of, of that financial mm-hmm. year, and, and we sat down, and, and you know, we we told them that we're predicting this sort of outcome for this this financial year for our business. It was it was a scenario where they were very happy for us to go and deliver what we thought we were going to deliver, 
recontact was made around August of that year and we sat down and looked at the results and, and they were really happy that we had actually achieved the numbers that we were predicting back in March. I guess gave them a couple of sort of insights into our business, our forecasting. Again, Simon was 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 pretty good. But also the fact that you know we were able to deliver some pretty high volume work in a quarter. And and in, in the industry, in, in in that industry, generally the final quarter of the financial year is where you tend to deliver a lot more work because you know authorities are looking to to use up their budget and they are looking to kind of get some projects completed. So that was the sort of the first three months was them sitting back and watching us do what we said we were going to do. Uh, and then the next sort of nine months was, you know, the, the whole kind of um, the process around due diligence, toing and froing negotiations um, and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, no doubt there'll be people listening to this who are, who are in the engineering and civil construction space and stuff like that. I think most people kind of have heard these you know, things around rules of thumb and whatever else. But I'm just curious as to how, how did you guys come to a number? Was there a sort of methodology that you used? There was, Simon. And, and we had some great sort of partners that we used to help, to help coach us through the process. Uh, and, and, you know, the, these, the guys that were coaching us were really focused on us establishing really early on in negotiations what the multiple needed to be. So it was almost like at the start of the negotiations, let's agree a multiple. Now, whether that multiple is five, six, seven, or eight times EBIT, let's agree. It's almost like rules of engagement around you know, that number. Yes. So what, once we agreed what the multiple was, it was then down to us to deliver and agree what, what, what the EBIT looked like. And, and that was a combination of the work we were doing, but then the, how strong our forecast looked going forward. Yes. And so it was almost a two-step process in agreeing the multiple and then agreeing the number. And then at the end of it, it was just the multiple times the number that, that, that we were yeah, delivering at yeah. the time. I, I really like what you've just described there because, and whether you use EBIT or EBITDA, whatever the, you know, the multiple, uh, you know, whatever you're multiplying is fine, but, and will be relevant to the, to the individual business. But I, I think if you can agree on what the multiple is, the final valuation is just the number, right? Like it's it's not an emotional thing. It's whatever we produced times the agreed number. And exactly so right. there's the potential to hose down potential disagreements. That's right, Simon. And, and the only kind of and, – and it's not even disagreements at that point of the conversation. It's more just ironing out the bugs. It's it's things like, you know, what's work in progress? Uh, mm. You know, what's what's yet to be yet to be realised, yet to be claimed, yet to be – Sort of recognised in the numbers that that's that's sitting on this side of the you know transaction date or that side of the transaction date. So it, it actually almost towards the end of the process becomes just a mechanical just um, processing of numbers, really. Yeah. And 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 the other experience that I had through this as well is that in in that period you know there's meetings taking place and and you're still kind of working out you know who the other party is and and you're building relationships as well. And, and, and so you, you get to the end point of, of this sort of 12-month process. And I, I've got to say, for me, that particular day, it was, it was incredibly rewarding, but it was almost like a bit of an anti-climax as well because you just go, oh, wow, okay, so there it is, 12 months worth of, um, so, uh, you know, work that, that's kind of, but, you know, it's because the hard work's already been done, Simon. So, mean, that's that's yeah, the thing. Yeah, yeah. 
And 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 I I honestly think that that's that reaction you've had is the sign of a well-run process. Mm, it was uh, it was definitely the. I mean, I, I look back now and I and I think about it, and it was it was definitely you know th- that was the reaction I had. But leading up to it, there was there was some 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 pretty um, pretty stressful meetings. Put it that way, Simon. Yeah. I can imagine. I mean, no transaction is is ever just sails through and everybody gets what they want. In fact, it, by the definition of of how deals get done, nobody ever gets everything they want. Otherwise, it's probably not been a great sort of deal and negotiation. Yeah. You know, one, yes. one person gets everything they want; the other, it's usually at the expense of somebody else, and so that's that's not a great outcome. Simon, it was a, it was an interesting process to go through, and, and and one of the things that I also kind of had to deal with through the process is. You almost have to lead a double life to a certain degree through that process, because yeah. there's, you know, as as the managing director and and, and part of the ownership uh, team of of, of, a, of a business, there's there's things that are happening that you can't quite reveal to to your leadership team to the rest of the business because they may or may not eventuate. You, you can't afford yes. people to become distracted with with certain other things, and and so you know our, our business we ran it in a very open and honest and transparent way and. And I really struggled for a few of those months to almost lead this double life where I was leaving leaving the office to go to meetings, but I wasn't really sort of revealing 100% what was happening at those meetings. And so for me, it was also, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was the day that we sold. It was a, all right, now I can kind of really open up about what's been going on and, and you know, sort of, yeah, I guess come clean if that, if that makes sense and, <laughs> and, and communicate yeah. with the rest of the business. No, I think that's a that's a really uh, you know thank you for sharing that. I think it's one of those things. It's one of those scenarios that business owners tend to face is that sense of feeling alone. You know, I I can't actually tell anybody. You know, or very few people I can actually tell the whole story to, and uh, and that can make people feel lonely and nervous and you know all sorts of things. So, Simon, that's what, that's some of the work I do now actually, mate. In in my life post ITS Pipe Tech, where Leading businesses can be quite a lonely process. There's, there's no doubt about that. Going through an acquisition can can take it to the next level because there's there's often nearly everything at stake for a business owner. You've, you've poured your blood, sweat, and tears into a business, it, you know, and so it, it can be a very lonely place. It can be. I was lucky enough to experience that process with a couple of co-owners at the time, and so it wasn't quite as lonely for me. But it it, it can be very lonely, mate. It's a great point that you make. Yeah. That's uh, interesting, and and I I want to get to what you're doing these days because I I can imagine it's it's going to be interesting and informed by all this experience. Just to finish up on on your transaction, did did you or any of your other business partners have to hang around after the transaction was done? Simon, I I uh, I agreed to hang around. Yes, absolutely. And so my my main focus of of taking the team into into Downer Utilities was transitioning my team into into the you know the, the the much bigger team that we were now working within, people finding their roles within the the, the the bigger team, and 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 helping because opportunities were presented for for members of, of ITS that weren't there previously. You know when, when we sold our business, we had around about 180 people working for us, and so now they were part of a, a team of 36,000. <laughs> so as you could imagine, yeah. Simon, there was opportunities that would be presented to to members of our team. So. I, I absolutely stuck around. I, I was I was lucky enough to be sort of given um, uh, you know some some responsibility within Downer. I was very lucky enough to be working with some 
you know, some, some great executives in there in, in transitioning my business into, into their wider business for the first year. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I did get to experience, you know, transitioning my business into, a, into that organization. And, and I think just to reiterate, I mean, I think that's a really good point for other business owners to keep in mind here because because many do worry about the, their employees and what will happen to them and, you know, they, they want to see them looked after. But your point you just made there is that I, I, when you're selling to these larger organisations, I mean, there can be huge upside opportunity for employees that, that you can't necessarily define during the process, but by sheer virtue of the size of this business means those opportunities are there and often made available, right? Hundred percent, Simon, and I, I've actually been incredibly proud of a few individuals that I've, uh, I've, I've, you know, been really keen on just observing how their careers have, have developed within Downer. Yeah. There's, there's a few that have really flourished, and it's, it really makes me kind of really proud to, to see them flourish uh, within that within that organisation. You know, like uh, running a business of 180 people, there's there's limits to where people can go because the business can only grow so fast. And and there are people people in every business that maybe want to grow a little bit faster than what the business can can um, accommodate. So taking a business like ours into a much larger organisation absolutely gave those that were a bit more ambitious an opportunity to you know stand up and look around and and, and really kind of define where they wanted to go. Yeah, see the forest for the trees. Um, I'm curious, Wally, what what were there any um, are there any tips or kind of advice you'd give business owners who are going through this or expecting to go through this around transition you know sometimes transitions they can have their challenges as well right so you know did you experience any challenges or were there any things that you you know in hindsight you go hey you know what we could probably do this better or i would probably ask more questions about that or you know stuff like that around around transitioning yeah look transitioning was an interesting process i i probably was a little bit naive in where I thought, you know, we were able to take certain members of my team into into the, the bigger organization within within Downer. I also was probably a little bit naive, not knowing what they had as well in terms of their, um, you know, support services, what they had in terms of their team. And so, you know, like there's, there's got to be an element of, um, you know, you've got to stand back and just take some consideration around what does, what will the other acquirer bring to my business and, and you've got to kind of take your team through that process with some curiosity as opposed to any nervousness. You know, it's almost like, come on, guys, let's just be curious about what, what that new world could look like. Let's not be, let's not be too nervous. Let's not be too, um, you know, apprehensive about what's going to happen. Let's just stay curious because there will be opportunities for, for members of my team. Uh, so, yeah. so, Simon, yeah, I mean, if I was to look back now, I probably – I probably could have been a bit more curious with with members of my team around what what the future could look like, because because you know there, there were a few people in my team that just just said to me right from the outset that you know Wally we joined this business because of ABC that's now going to change, so we, we you know respectfully we're probably going to see ourselves sort of um, you know into a new journey, and so maybe that that's probably an area that I, I reflect on now that I could have probably been encouraged a bit more curiosity going forward. Yeah. I think that's a really great bit of advice. That's you know, and I've I've seen a similar thing where people have kind of almost thrown the gauntlet down. Right, well, I joined for this as well, and I'm out. If you're this is, it's like hang on, a minute, you you actually have not. You're making assumptions about what it's like over there, and you haven't you haven't looked yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 coming into coming into an organisation as big as Downer with about 180 of your friends. I mean, I looked yeah. at it that way. It's actually quite. 
you know, it, it's quite comforting to be able to just come in and have a look around and just observe as opposed to quickly jump on uh, some, some, some final decisions. Yeah, we, we all we all kind of look at these things differently, you know. We all kind of um, uh, you know risk assess in our own in our own certain way, you know. Yeah, and and react to stress differently as well. I imagine. Absolutely. So, yeah. Um. So, Wally, tell us a little bit about what you're doing today. Simon, there's a there's a fair bit that I'm doing at the moment, mate. So I've um I've launched a business with uh, with my wife uh, called Real Business Matters. It's a business that was launched initially to you know, uh, coach and mentor uh, business owners in, in growing their businesses and, you know, achieving what they wanted to achieve in, in, in their business sort of um, careers. It's interesting because our business has taken a bit of a shift in the last sort of 18 months and, and now Real Business Matters has taken on a bit more of a, it's almost like an outsourced GM type of business that we've got now. And it was, it really kind of morphed due to some of our clients and our clients' needs. Uh, you know, we, we we thought, well, coaching can only take you so far. Often business owners come to a coach because they just haven't got time or they don't know what to do or they just they need some sort of help. Mm. A coach coming in and, and coming up with strategies that take more time to execute maybe isn't the right thing that a business owner needs at the time. So we kind of morphed into a, more of an outsourced general manager business and it's really kind of gone well for us, uh, Simon. We've, we've been able to come in and influence at different levels of an organization and, and be able to help a business owner more than just coaching, but also taking some work off their hands. So that's, that's what we're doing at the moment, mate. I've also got a um, – uh, I co-founded a sports education business as well with, um, cool. with a great friend of mine, uh, a, a, a great individual who's got a lot of passion for, for education, uh, for sports, Having a lot of fun doing that, mate, and looking to roll roll out some uh, programs a- across many many schools in early 2022. Uh, would have been 2021 if it wasn't for our friend COVID 19. But um, <laughs> but yeah, that's um, that's that's happening next year, hopefully. So yeah, yeah, having a bit of fun at the moment, mate. Yeah, that's great. It's great to hear. Is is there an ideal type of client that that you know you know you just really well suited to? There is Simon. It's 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 a client that's got the fire in the belly. It's a client that's got passion. Uh, it's a client that's got you know, um, a real sort of uh, presence in the market but just hasn't got the time to just work on their business as opposed to getting bogged down in the business. You know, one, yeah. of, one, of the, one of the lines that you know, we, um, we use when we're introducing our business, you know, we're going to take the things on that a business owner feels that they're getting bogged down with that's not allowing them to work on their business. We actually, me, my wife, and 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 our um, our partners within the business, we like doing some of that operational stuff. So let us do that. You guys go ahead and focus on growing your business. So that that is our ideal client, Simon. Oh, that's brilliant. And and I think too, I mean, we all have strengths and weaknesses. You can't be an expert at everything, and that goes the same thing for running your business. You know, if you're really great at making widgets, um, but maybe you're not the marketing or salesperson or the operations person. Great, you know now you've got a uh, an outsourced general manager, you know, resource that you can call upon to fill those gaps and and take your business to the next level. So, uh, I think that's brilliant, mate. Simon, uh, the other thing that we we do help with is you know, and, and why it's an outsourced general manager is we take control of their meetings uh, with the, with the senior leadership team. We take control of the tough conversations that sometimes a founder is uncomfortable having with 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 people in the business. 
And so it's it's literally freeing freeing up business owners to get back to what they're passionate about. Because I, I know all too well that sometimes your passion can then kind of, it, it, it diminishes when you get bogged down into the operational mechanics of running the business. So yeah, Simon, it's, uh, it's, we're having a lot of fun doing this, mate, working with some really great people. Oh, that's awesome, Wally. I'm glad to hear it. And, mate, are you, are you happy for people to reach out and connect or, you know, contact you? Yeah, would love that, mate. I, uh, I'm on LinkedIn, so if anyone would like to, to contact me on LinkedIn, that's great. We've also got some YouTube videos that we've done, and uh, they could be accessed through our website at um, www.realbusinessmatters.com.au. But, um, you know, would, would love to have a conversation with, with anyone that, um, that feels that they benefit with, um, with our services. No, that's great. Well, look, we'll put a link to your LinkedIn page and your website in the show notes for anybody who would like to have a have another look. Uh, as we always say, if you do reach out to connect with Wally on LinkedIn, put a little note with the connection, will you? Let him know maybe that you heard him on the Buy, Build, Sell podcast so he knows where you're coming from and, and what the context is. Um, and I'm sure that'll be uh, make things a lot smoother for you when you do connect. So, Wally, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. It was such a great insight. Thank you, Simon. appreciate this, mate. And uh, you've got a really good show, mate. I, uh, I appreciate what you're doing. Uh, thanks very much, mate. Take care. Thank you, Simon. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder Questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group, a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn.